This is an ABC podcast. When a young Chris Neist finished his law degree in the mid-1970s, he was advised not to go to work on the Gold Coast. According to the Brisbane Legal Fraternity, the Goldie was a place full of conveyances in shorts and long socks and not a place to make a legal career. But drawn there by his love of surfing, Chris began his life in the law in what was then just a small holiday town on the beach. His 45 years as a criminal lawyer have turned out to be a wild ride. He's acted for career criminals, corrupt police, heroin addicts and the so-called postcard bandit, Brendan Abbott. Chris has used some of the more dramatic chapters in his working life as inspiration for his crime novels and for the film Getting Square. His latest novel, a murder mystery called Millen, reimagines one of the proudest moments of his legal career. Hi, Chris. Hi, Sarah. As a little boy, was being a lawyer what you dreamt of? Uh, well, strangely enough, it kind of was. I, I was a child of the 50s, which, of course, is the golden era of Hollywood. And my parents, like most parents, most people, I suppose, in those days were movie mad. And we used to, they, I don't know that on a Friday and Saturday night, they'd dress us up uh, in our pyjamas and dressing gowns and slippers and they'd take us off to the local suburban picture theatre and we'd sit in the canvas seats and watch... In your you know, PJs. In our PJs, that's the way it was done. <laughs> um, we were only little fellas, of course. We'd watch the likes of uh, Gary Cooper and, and Spencer Tracy and Humphrey Bogart and all of those people. So I, I, by the time I was about 10, I had convinced myself that I wanted to be an actor, just like all these heroes. But my father was smart enough to say to me, uh, there's no money in the arts, and he was dead right there, he said, you know, there's no money in acting, so, you know, what, what you need to be is a lawyer, because a lawyer's the next best thing to an actor. And, of course, in those days we had um, Raymond Burr in um, Perry Mason, and I looked at that and I realised, well, my father was exactly right, and so that's, you know, that was the course I went on, and, and uh, I pretty much continued on that trajectory right through until I got to... Um, to finish my schooling and started university at University of Queensland. So your father was concerned, understandably, about you making a living, but was he also a man who admired eloquence, you know, the ability of someone to change another person's mind through their words and their, their rhetoric? Very much so. Uh, he was a man who could speak five languages. He was most impressed by the great orators of that time. And, and in the 60s and, and the 50s, Many of the lawyers, particularly in the criminal law jurisdiction, were great orators. And uh, my father was in, in particular a fan of the great Dan Casey, who was a, a very well-known and celebrated criminal law barrister at the time. And my father used to take us along to the courts, to the magistrates' courts usually, to see Casey cross-examining people and dressing In your pyjamas and, so and dressing gown to no, see that no, as well? No, no, we got to wear our shorts and long socks. <laughs> So what, he'd just take you to go and look at, at law courts in session? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. what about, I mean, now a lot of public debate happens online or in, or in social media, but yeah. back in the 50s and 60s there was still the tradition of, of public speakers yep. at the Domain. Was yeah, that we, a part we, of your life too? We used too? to go to the Domain there near All Hallows and, and everybody get up on their soapbox and, and my father loved that and he'd sort of insist, let's go along and watch, you know, go to the Domain Thankfully, he didn't sort of get onto the soapboxes, but he uh, he loved all of that. Well, if he was going to take up take a spot on the soapbox, what kind of thing would have he argued about? Do you think? My father was a very original thinker, and he had an opinion on everything. He was a force of nature, my father, and so he talked to you about anything, anything. In <laughs> fact, in his 
in his dotage, I remember he, he wrote, he, or he began to write a sort of a, a little bit of a treatise on his big ideas. Uh, I called the book, or the, uh, I pre-called the book, the small book of big things <laughs> because it was about everything and he'd talk about the universe and he'd talk about you know, religion and all of these things, but had, he had some very strong original views. Well, as a young kid, you were just hoping you wouldn't share those with the great public of That's of exactly Brisbane. right. That is exactly right. Tell me about your dad's life growing up. What do you know about what things were like for him as a kid? Uh, he had a very interesting and somewhat disrupted childhood. He, he was born in um, Marseille in, in south of France. Um, his father was the Dutch consul in Marseille. His mother was Italian. And w- when he was about 15 years of age, when the Germans occupied south of France, so in, I think it was uh, November 42, the the Germans, uh, they, the, they had previously just occupied the north, but my father's family lived in what was called the Zone Libre, Libre. Um, meaning the free zone in, in the south. But the the Vichy government made some arrangements with the Germans and they moved into the south of France. And at that time, well, everything changed for my father. And it's a long story, um, but he ended up um, having to leave his home and so well, forth. Well, tell us about that, Chris. What happened? What was your grandfather doing that, that put the family in danger? Um my my grandfather, uh, as I said to you, is the consul, the Dutch consul in Marseille, and uh, as such, he worked with a lot of expatriate Dutch people. Um, and when the occupation occurred in, I think it was in um, early '43, the the French police rounded up about thirteen thousand Jews in Paris and put them in the velodrome there, and then shipped them off to Germany, and that became part of a new. Uh, initiative in terms of the Jews in, in France. And my grandfather came to realise that that was going to be uh, put in place in the south of France. And so he got it into his head that something had to be done about that. And he 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 rented a series of old derelict farmhouses through the region around the Galabang. And the, it's a very hilly sort of area around Marseille, at the back of Marseille. Uh, and these were sort of um, deserted, faraway places, and, and you could only get to them by walking to them. And, and so he put his foot on these various places and then allowed Jewish, primarily Dutch Jews, as I understand it, but also other Jewish people to stay in those houses. And um, he did that for quite some time. In fact, he, he ultimately, he started that in mid-43 and he kept going right through to liberation in '44. And he and my father used to, on a, on a Sunday, they would get in the tram, they'd go as far as the tram went to the terminus and then they would walk. They'd take food and they'd walk to these various places and that sometimes was like a five-hour walk to get to them and they'd distribute the food and then they'd come home. But at some point, a, a person from one of those farmhouses went into a village <laughs> looking to buy sweets, would you believe, and and was then... It was reported because he was speaking in a foreign accent and people thought he was a German deserter. That led to my grandfather being taken into the prefecture and questioned and the fellow that was there said, you know, we we know that you're hiding Jews and if you don't tell us the locations of where they all are, who they are, we don't get a list, 
by tomorrow, then your family will all be in a concentration camp by tomorrow night. And so my grandfather then went home, uh, spoke to my grandmother, and they decided that they would send away their children. And uh, so my father then was 15 going on 16, um, and his younger brother, Philippe, was about 12, and his youngest brother, Dudu, uh, was uh, about four or was four years of age. And so they put them all on a train that night and they'd made an arrangement and they were to get on the train and go to Limoges, which is in southwest France. And uh, they were to, my father was given the instructions, you must stay awake, don't fall asleep, <laughs> so that uh, you don't want to miss the the station. And so they went off into the night, as it were, and they were met at this train station by a person who was, in fact, the son of a, a Jewish guy that my grandfather had helped. And um, they took them in for a number of days in, into their home in Limoges. And then they were, they were secreted or taken away to um, a place called Confoulon, which is in the southwest of France. And what about your, your grandparents? Did they then have to provide the, the details of where they were hiding Jewish people? You know, I don't happened? know the history of that. I do know that that guy never reported my grandfather. And why, I'm not sure, but he didn't. And then your dad and his two younger brothers are, are far away from their family in another part of, your, of France. What happened to your dad then? Well, they were... My, my father was... Uh, kept at a, an, an inn called La Belle Etoile uh, in Confoulon. And that inn was run by a lady whose name I think was Madame Fumeron. And Madame Fumeron had a number of people hidden there, including a, uh, a, a professor of mathematics from the Sorbonne who lived in the ceiling. And she and her sons would look after these people. My, my father's brother, Philippe, was sent to a, another village called Ansak, which is not very far from there. And Dudu, the little fellow, was at another house in, in Confolon. And they, they were, they basically led semi-normal lives. My father went to school, although he, he wasn't enrolled in the school, but the head teacher said he would let him come to classes. He wasn't to use his surname and wasn't to tell people too much about himself. During 1943, in July 43, I think it was, the French, the Vichy government, made a, a piece of legislation which was called La Relève, I think. But it, what it was was an agreement with the Germans that they would now send young French men to France to work in the factories to free up Germans um, for, the, for the front. And so suddenly the young fellows were being rounded up in this area of Confoulon and throughout France and my father by then had turned 16 years of age and so uh, he was, uh, you know, at risk of moving around in the community at all and so he ended up um, joining the Maquis, which is, the, which is like the French underground, but um, it's the, it's, they were like guerrilla fighters for the, for the resistance. At just 16, was he actually 16. involved in fighting? Yes, he was, yeah. He was, he was, uh, he was significantly involved in fighting in France Later, some time later, he ended up joining the Dutch army and fought, with, fought against the Japanese in the Pacific. But when he joined the Dutch army, he couldn't speak Dutch. 
but he was immediately made a squad leader because he was a combat veteran. And there were not many combat veterans there because they were all just young fellows, and he was only 17 and was already a combat veteran. How did he end up in Australia during the war? Well, when the Allies landed in D-Day on, on 6th of June, 44, um, they landed in Normandy. In, in the days that followed, they also landed at a place called Cavalier near um, Saint-Tropez. And by that time, the Germans were on the retreat by then. My father then said he wanted to join an army, and it was to be the Dutch army because he's, he, had a, he had Dutch nationality. And so he was smuggled through the lines down to Marseille, thinking he'd be joining the Dutch army, um, but then he discovered that there was no Dutch army. The Dutch hadn't landed at Cavalier. And so he then was sent by the, uh, the Allies to London, where he joined the Dutch army, and then the, he was sent out by the Dutch army to the Dutch East Indies. Uh, the Dutch were fighting in New Guinea in the Pacific. And uh, he, that boat landed in a place which he'd never heard of called Brisbane, and, um, and that was his first contact with Australia. And then he was sent by the Dutch army to the jungle training course at Canungra, which is at the back of the Gold Coast, uh, where you know a lot of troops were trained, or most troops were trained during those days for jungle training. So where was he when the war ended, Chris? He was in the Pacific. He was uh, he uh, even after the war ended, they they were doing a lot of liberating of places where there were still Japanese troops, and often there was fighting against those Japanese troops after the war ended um, because a lot of them didn't know the war had ended, a lot of the Japanese, and some of them had a kind of an attitude they were going to carry it on anyway. So ultimately he was demobbed uh, from the, the, um, what was known as the Dutch East Indies and then he went back to Marseille. And then what job did his dad, your granddad, ar- uh, arrange for him at the end of the war? Uh, yeah, well, wh- when my dad went got back to France, I think he was a bit like a lot of veterans. At that time, he was a, at a bit of a loose end. And um, my grandfather organised for him to have a, to get a job with the Rotterdam Zoo, collecting um, Australian native animals, birds and animals. And so he went back out to Australia and he then became, he you know, he, he was running around chasing trapping kangaroos and all those sort of things. So he was actually doing the trapping himself yeah, and, yeah, and was, catching them. Yeah, he was doing all of that, yeah, and, then and boxing how, them up. And, yeah. and then travelling with these yeah, poor so, native Australian animals all yeah, the way to, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to so the Netherlands. They'd, yeah, they'd just put them in crates and they'd put them on a boat and they'd take them back. Uh, uh, and that, that, of course, was, I don't know, it was a, a, a journey of weeks to get back by sea. That would have been quite a noisy, smelly boat, I'm imagining, by the time it finally landed in, in Rotterdam. And that's to say nothing of the animals, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who was he sharing that boat with? Oh, all sorts of people, all sorts of people. He, uh, he used to tell a terrific tale about a guy who, some Australian guy who I think was a bit of a drunk, but he got, this guy somehow got a contract to supply uh, the Ethiopian army with horses because they were going to start a cavalry in Ethiopia for Haile Selassie and they, this fellow sort of, instead of sort of getting first class horses, he went out west I think and, and rounded up a whole lot of Brumbies that were as wild as one thing and 
they put them all in crates and my father had crates there with the kangaroos on them and they were all being shipped off. They got us, got as far as Addis Ababa uh, in Ethiopia and the, the, the guy, the drunk, was sort of disappeared and uh, they were trying to unload these horses uh, onto the onto the quay at, um, in Addis Ababa and, and it was the Ethiopian army that were doing this and of course all these guys, these Ethiopian guys had never seen a horse I guess, if they had they, they didn't know how to handle horses and um, they were trying to, to, to get the horses off the ship, they just had a long gangplank and they'd have the horse at the top of the gangplank and they had a big long rope and there'd be about five or six guys at the bottom pulling that rope trying to get the horse down and of course the horse in those circumstances isn't going to go anywhere. And my father, uh, it was just, you know, a kid, but had by then been in the army, had been a leader of men in the army and so forth. He sort of stepped up and said, oh, that's not the way to do it. I'll, I can show you how. And he took his shirt off and he put his shirt over the horse's head. And, of course, then he just led the horse down. The horse went, because it couldn't see anything, it went, and it went straight down. And these people were amazed and they were all then starting to talk about how um, he needed to head up the uh, the Ethiopian cavalry and there was some talk about him going to see uh, 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 Haile Selassie to talk to him about that, but luckily he didn't go that way. He kept going. <laughs> well, apart from, from shipping kangaroos and, and wild horses from Australia to Rotterdam, what other work was he doing out west in Queensland as a young bloke? Uh, I think a bit of everything, but, you know, mainly building, um, building picture theatres and that sort of stuff and... Um, uh, there was a lot of money in in the uh, West, as I said, in those days. And, uh, you know, there were things to be built, uh, you know, uh, shearing sheds and all that sort of stuff. And so he, you know, spent some years out there doing all of that. Um, of course, he'd moved through the West with his, um, with his work with the animals and all that sort of stuff. And um, so, you know, that whole period became a a real kind of feature of nice family folklore because we grew up with those stories and those sentiments, um, not least of all because uh, it wasn't just my father that ended up there. Obviously my mum was there and tagging along and living in shearers' sheds and all that sort of stuff as, as when we were born and brought up. Um, but, my, but his brothers also came out from France um, uh, at different times and did some of the, all of that with him and... and Dudu, who was the youngest, ended up living in Mitchell with, uh, for quite some time. You went back with your dad to visit his family in France over the years. What what did you make of, of your grandparents when you met them? Because I guess you'd heard all these stories about your grandfather's kind of and your grandmother's heroic actions yeah. during the war. What were they like to meet? Uh, my my pappy was a, my grandfather was a. A bit of a cruiser. He was a very, he was uh, sort of one of those guys that would sit around and pontificate and, and like to read books and all that sort of stuff and was a, a, was a thinker, I guess. Um, when I, when I, I remember uh, one of my abiding memories of him is him sitting out at uh, La Bretagne, which was a, a rest home that uh, my grandmother ran and he'd sit out there, he'd find a place in the sunny and and Dudu had bought him a big Stetson hat and he put he used to wear the Stetson hat and he'd put his hands on top of his um, walking stick and he had a little piece of like a handkerchief or a rag he'd put on the top hand so he wouldn't get sunburned in the sun <laughs> so his hand wouldn't get sunburned and he'd just sit there for hours speaking to people and pontificating generally. So he was a pretty cruisy sort of guy. Ranier was his name. 
Um, but my mother, my grandmother was the, almost the opposite. She was like my dad, a real force of nature. She was a great, the great matriarch um, and she, she established this nursing home. It was called La Britannia. She established that. In fact, she did, she did it because um, at that time and still now, the world headquarters of the um, French Foreign Legion was in Aubagne, which is just outside Marseille. And La Britannia was a, um, a, a, an old building uh, on, a, on an acreage near Aubagne. And so she established that as a nursing home and, uh, and it was a nursing home specifically for retired officers from the French Foreign Legion. And uh, that went on for many, many years and remained in the family. Uh, we're just in the process of selling it now, but it's still So in the when family. you'd go and visit, did you meet any of those retired French Foreign Legion officers? Oh, yeah, lots of them. What yeah, were they yeah. like? Oh, well, they, they were like retired people. <laughs> they were like old. Um, and also a lot of the staff uh, were ex-Legionnaires. Um, and there were some interesting guys. There was one guy in particular, Zorro, who we used to see Zorro. a lot. Zorro. was what they called him, I don't know. But <laughs> Zorro was uh, sort of like a hardy, tough sort of guy and he was always there to do all the work and he'd do basically everything. But not just at La Britannia, he'd also, you know, my father had a boat over there in Lelec Harbour and uh, a sailing boat and, you know, if we had to go and clean the barnacles off the boat or whatever, Zorro would always be there and, and you know, there, there were others as well. But Zorro was the one I remembered because of the name, Zorro. You know, like that was pretty, pretty exciting. Well, given all of the things that your dad had lived through at, at such a young age, I mean, was he pretty tough on you and, and your brothers? Uh, tough, I mean, I don't know, not, not really. No, my father was, he was... Uh, I suppose tough in, in this sense. We, I mean, we were his slaves, as sons <laughs> tended to be that to their fathers in those days. In my book. Yeah, we no, were his well, slaves. Yeah. Well, you know, whenever <laughs> something had to be done, it was, come on, boys, let's get together. If we all get together, it won't take long if we all get into it, used to be Eddie's saying. It won't take long if we all get into it, So, which which meant he would tell us what to do and we'd do the labouring sort of thing. But, no, he was uh, he was a doer, Eddie, but he was a doer and he always was moving mountains, basically. You mentioned that um, after having a, a range of different careers and, and doing a lot of building and kind of building up family business here in in Queensland, he went back and studied law. He did. Who else was studying law with him at the same time? Well, I know one bloke. Uh, he's, he started uh, law with me when I when I started law at Queensland University. My dad uh, started at the same time. So what, you were 18 or, or so? Yeah, I was 17. I was 17 years old. Um, my father had uh, been successful in business and he retired when he, I think he was 40 or 42, something like that. And uh, I guess he just sort of thought, here's my opportunity. My son's going to, to start law. I'll go and start with him. So, How did that, you feel about that? Uh, that didn't worry me at all. You know, he, he, he did his own thing, kept out of my way. You know, I, was, I, I used to sit up the back of the class and throw spitballs, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> Um, but he was always in the front row and very conscientious, as older students tend to be, but, uh, yeah. So did you graduate together? No, we sort of, we went, you know, we went through, um, he ended up, you know, as I said, going to the bar, I ended up following the, the solicitor's course, and so we, we went our own separate ways in that sense. I, during those years, got very diverted into surfing. 
and that was something that took me away a lot. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Chris, after you'd graduated, after studying at the same time as, uh, as your dad, studying law together at the University of Queensland, what made you want to start your career at the Gold Coast? Uh, by then I was, I was hooked on surfing and it really, it's, in a way it's kind of hard to explain to people, but surfing became all-consuming to me and I think to a whole generation of young guys, in particular guys in those days. And so I was just keen to get to the surf and be near the surf. And what kind of reaction did your mum have to the idea of you setting up, not in chambers in Brisbane or Sydney or Melbourne, but at the Goldie? Well, my mum went to see her solicitor and uh, asked what he thought of that and he said... uh, no, don't let him go to the Gold Coast. That's a backwater, a legal backwater, and lawyers on the Gold Coast were just you know, wore long short, uh, shorts and long socks, Bermuda shorts and long socks, and did conveyancing, and that was it basically. And uh, and so uh, I actually took heed of that initially. I started my articles in Brisbane, but I was always keen to get to the Gold Coast, and I ended up coming down to the coast. You're wearing a, a very dapper suit today, but did you ever as wear always, Bermuda shorts and, and long socks in your early days I as a lawyer? I can honestly say I have never worn a pair of Bermuda shorts, uh, <laughs> and certainly not long socks, uh, to work, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, in those early years in the, in the late 70s at the Gold Coast, what kind of cases made up the majority of your work? You know, when I first came to the Gold Coast, I, I, I came, I think, uh, to, to work full-time uh, in 75. And, you know, I was just a young lawyer learning my trade, but I fell quite quickly into the crime genre, if I can use a, a literary film term. Um, but I, I fell quite quickly into that and started doing a lot of that. By, by the late 70s and early 80s, a lot of the work I was doing was drug work and specifically heroin-related because heroin went through the Gold Coast and particularly the surfing community, not just the Gold Coast surfing community, but I think the surfing community worldwide, heroin went through that population like a dose of salts, as it were, Um, and there was a lot of that sort of work and I was... Uh, you know, drawn into it, I suppose, because, you know, I knew that that world, that surfing world in particular. Um, And so, yeah, I was doing an awful lot of that by the the early 80s. In these years before uh, the Fitzgerald Inquiry in Queensland, what kind of um, issues did clients have in terms of the way they were being treated by police in those days? You know, uh, pre-Fitzgerald Inquiry, Criminal law, it was like the Wild West. It was crazy. Uh, the, there were the police, whatever, however people might like to rewrite history now, the police were misbehaving badly. And it wasn't just about corruption, you know, money changing hands, that sort of thing, but the the use of um, or what became known as the verbal 
um, in Queensland, it, it, it was very, very widespread in my experience and in the experience of every other lawyer I know that lived through it. What is a verbal? A verbal is just simply the making up or the fabrication of a verbal confession. So, for example, if I decide to charge Sarah with uh, stealing a, uh, a, a box of chocolates, then I uh, say to her, I get her into the police station and say, OK, well, now do you admit that you stole this box of chocolates? She says, no, no, it wasn't me. I say, OK. And then I sit down and I write in my notebook, question, um, Sarah, did you steal these chocolates? Answer... Yes, I did, but uh, you you can't prove it. Question, uh, where did you steal them from? Answer, I'm not telling you where I stole them from, but I stole them and, and that's all, and I'm not saying anything more. Now, that, that uh, confession, if you like, was able to be given without any signature or initials or anything else Just given in a court of law. Just complete fabrication. Complete fabrication. And were there no recordings of, of police interviews In those back days, then? there were no recordings. Now all, uh, all uh, interviews in, re- in relation to indictable offences must be tape recorded, but at that time there was no such thing. And, and those uh, verbals, if you like, were used in cases all the way from stealing a box of chocolates up to mass murder. Uh, and... Sometimes they may have been true. They may, these things may have been said, but sometimes they perhaps weren't. So what are some of the bigger cases that it's been revealed they were well, false confessions? I mean, this went through to all cases. Uh, I mean, even the biggest criminal case in Queensland history, I think still, uh, being the whiskey a go firebombing case, uh, in that case... A verbal confession, when I say verbal, a, 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 an unsigned record of interview was a part of and the most significant part of the evidence against one of the accused in that. So it wasn't just being used for minor petty stuff. And th- there was evidence I know given at the Lucas Royal Commission by a, a very experienced uh, criminal law solicitor that up to 80% of his cases involved allegations of verbaling. And so the truth was that as a young lawyer, as I was coming through doing my thing, for about the first decade and more of my 15 years probably of my practising career, we spent all our time in courts arguing about what was and wasn't said behind closed doors in police stations. How would you go about arguing on behalf of a client when there's no record, there's just a a policeman's word against an accused? Well, you had to work at it. And, you know, some were better than others, but it was an uphill battle. And sometimes you did win because juries are are good at discerning the truth from things, but very often you didn't. And it became a real cause celebre, as it were. It became something that really consumed me and I know other lawyers that were in, in those trenches at that time. I mean, people like Terry O'Gorman, who's well known, I think, um, to listeners. Uh, Terry led through that era with us as well, and his partner, John Robertson, and so many other good lawyers who uh, really worked very hard every day in the courts fighting that uh, process. What was your opinion um, of how that culture developed in the Queensland police? How had that grown up as part of the police force? You know... It's, uh, there's no doubt that it, it sort of started with a view that was taken or at least 
foisted on people that the smarties were getting away with things and we can't catch them, we can't, we know they've done it, we can't prosecute them, um, we should be, you know, there must be another way. And and I, I think a lot of people that went into the police, I, I think most people that go into the police force and did at that time started off with a view to trying to do the right thing. And, and, and you know, I learned about this in the aftermath of the Fitzgerald inquiry, I was acting for a, a quite senior officer who, in the uh, licensing branch, who was ultimately prosecuted for um, perjury at the Fitzgerald Inquiry Commission. And in, in dealing, um, in, in acting for him, I had to go back through, obviously, as you do with all of these cases, and and talk about his background and how it all started and where all this came from and so forth. And the story he told, I think, is probably a typical story. He came from reasonably humble circumstances. Uh, he went into the police force wanting to make a difference, wanting to do good things. Um, he found himself uh, amongst older officers who were jaded and not, I guess, willing to do the hard yards. He was taught about uh, verbaling and some other practices, but just focusing for now on verbaling. And uh, he was convinced by others that this was the right way to do the right thing uh, and and he adopted it. And, and you know, I often think uh, when I heard that story and I extrapolated out over the rest of this man's career, I feel like once you cross that line as a police officer or as anybody, as a lawyer or whatever, once you cross that line where you think, look, it's okay to break the rules and do the wrong thing if it's for the right reasons, then you are lost in the long run because, you know, you, you do these things for the right reason and then eventually you say, well, you know, I might as well make a quid while I'm doing it. And so I think it was something that happened by degrees to, to good people. Is that part of what you're often doing as a criminal lawyer, Chris, starting with the crime at hand and working back to try to understand, I guess, the life story of that? person who's sitting yeah. in front of you. Always, always, because um, that's why I invariably start my first conference with everybody is I want you to sit down and I want you to write out a life history. Just tell me about yourself so I know who you are and where you came from and what influenced you and what made you happy, what made you sad and where, how did you end up here sort of thing because I think that's what you've got to do. How willing are people to do that, to, to disclose to you some things that maybe they think are, are not going to be beneficial to them? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking about this to my youngest son, Jonathan, who is in practice with me as a criminal lawyer, and he was saying to me, he said, you know, it's crazy, these people, we come into their lives and they tell us all this stuff and... And often it's stuff they've never told anybody before, but they, they tell us about themselves and all the rest of it. And he said, it's, it's a real privilege being able to do that. And he said, we're only in their lives for a sh relatively short time, but we, we get to know these things. And, and uh, it's exactly how I feel about it. I think it's a great honour and a privilege. And it's one that you've got to be careful about because it, you, people are entrusting you with, with things that, uh, that they may have never shared with anyone before and may never share again. 
And you're encountering them presumably in the in some of the most difficult times of, of their whole life. You are. You, you they are at a at a low. They're they're in a crisis situation, and that again is a real privilege to be sort of basically you're being called upon to stand beside somebody who doesn't have any friends and you know be their friend and um, well you know not their friend but be their ally as it were. Back in those pre-Fitzgerald days, Chris, you would have seen the things that were were terribly wrong and damaging and uh, immoral about the way the legal system was working. Was there also a part of you that enjoyed the adrenaline of it or, or liked the drama of it? Was it an exciting time to be a criminal lawyer? Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, that, that, that was a big part of um, what carried me through those years, I, I just loved doing it. It was just great. You know, it was exciting for a young man. Um, I th- I still think it's exciting, to be honest with you, <laughs> criminal law. Um, but in those days, it was particularly robust and exciting and sometimes a little bit threatening and scary. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was certainly a young man's... Uh, <laughs> Endeavour in those days. Were some of the detectives uh, pretty tough characters or, or yeah. guys that you, I mean, what kind of encounters did you have with some of the, the oh, police? Oh, look, there were a lot of tough old birds in those days um, and some of them were quite serious. Some of them were serious people, not many, but some of them were. And so um, you had to be able to soak all of that up. I, I, I'm, I, uh, I know that, uh, you know, I've been... in in situations over the years, in late-night situations in police stations where I've felt quite threatened by, you know, one or two. They were, they were, they were um, exceptions rather than the rule. But what, wasn't, what was not an exception was there was um, uh, almost a universal animosity by those detectives towards people like me <laughs> uh, because we were considered to be sort of on the side of the crooks and and we were a roadblock and so we were not well received. Sometimes that spilled over into more threatening behaviour, but rarely. Did that shift with Fitzgerald? Does it feel like a different kind of landscape now? Totally, totally. The The world changed with uh, when Fitzgerald came along and, you know, we just couldn't believe it when these things started hitting the newspapers and the and the police started lining up to tell tales about each other. We were just, it was after all the, you know, it had been 15 years and, and really my only experience in the law from the time I started, the police were, were as thick as thick could be um, and they stood shoulder to shoulder and, and at least on what I was being told about various cases I mean would line up to tell lies consistent with each other. Now, maybe I was being told lies by my clients, but but they were very tight. And then suddenly Fitzgerald came along and they were all revealing all these things and perhaps it was cathartic for a lot of them and perhaps it was something that they had to do eventually. But they did and it changed everything. And it, it, it I, I remember after the Fitzgerald inquiry, finished in the years that followed, it was a very busy time for us as lawyers and particularly at the end of the Fitzgerald Inquiry, of course, all the prosecutions were going on and so we were very busy doing those things. But I remember running into a, a, uh, a fellow solicitor um, 
John Robertson, who was Terry O'Gilman's partner for many years, and John was is a lovely fellow, um, and um, John had been a practicing criminal lawyer for many years. He later became a district court judge, um, um, but John uh, and I started talking. You know, there must have been probably a year or two after the inquiry had finished, and we just started talking about, oh, you know, things have changed, and da 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 da, and we got got talking about how much better the police force were at their jobs now and what a much better job they were doing and how good it was with all of the interviews being tape recorded and so forth. And and we, we would have been there, this was just in um, in Turbot Street, we just ran into each other on the footbar and I think we would have been there about an hour just chatting away about this. And as we were we were leaving, uh, John said to me or I said to him, you know, it's, it's not, not, not as much fun anymore, is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> Which was kind of the way it was. So suddenly, you know, we were dealing with a whole different animal. Better for the public, not as much fun for the lawyers. That's it. There's a portrait of you in your Gold Coast office painted by a client currently in mm. prison. Tell me about that. Uh, that was, was painted by uh, Brendan Abbott, who was became known as the uh, postcard bandit. And Brendan uh, was jail for a long, long time. He's still in prison. I, don't, I think he's not released for several years to come. But um, G- Brendan was a guy who'd escaped from the Fremantle jail as a young man. And although most escapees are recaptured within a week or two at most of their escape, he was on the run for six years. And during that time, of course, uh, as a as a criminal on the run, he committed crime, as in bank robberies. And so when he was finally caught, he, he ended up doing a long stretch. Anyway, to answer your question, when he uh, went to prison, um, he eventually, he, he spent a long time in solitary confinement, in fact, uh, an inordinate time on in solitary confinement, I think close to a decade in solitary confinement, broken by another escape, but oh, that's another story. But <laughs> but um, but he, he then took up painting and he um, was a very, very accomplished painter, an excellent painter. And he painted my portrait when he was in Sir David Longland's centre. The kind of treatment or the, the, the way that his incarceration has involved those long periods of solitary confinement, as a lawyer, how do you make sense of that? How does it compare to the way uh, other people convicted of similar crimes might be treated once they're in prison? You know, there was a hysteria about Abbott because he had escaped firstly from Fremantle Prison, the only prisoner I think that ever escaped and didn't never went back to Fremantle because Fremantle closed down I think in the early 90s. But, but he'd escaped and then he'd been on the run for so long and the police were, uh, it was just driving them crazy that they couldn't get him and uh, that became a real issue not only with police but with corrective services authorities and gen- and 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 uh, government generally and so there was a there was a great deal of of um, hysteria about him and that hysteria uh, that manifested itself when he was taken into custody in Queensland uh, the Queensland authorities were were absolutely uh, determined that he wouldn't he'd never escape and so they just gave him these stints of solitary confinement they give him six months at a time. Now, you know, solitary confinement used to be a thing in the old days at Bogger Road 
they used to call it the black hole and eventually there was much controversy about the black hole during the Fitzgerald years and so forth and, and Bugger Road was essentially closed down because of that, those sort of controversies about the black hole and solitary confinement. But I've never known of anybody to have been in the black hole for more than about three weeks. Abbott was in solitary confinement for about 10 years. He did three years, then he escaped again from, from um, uh, I think, from Woodford. Uh, uh, at the time, he was a bit of a political football because the, the um, uh, state government was saying how we're tough on crime and the, the opposition was saying, oh, no, we're tougher on crime. And it, it, all of this happened in the lead-up to a Queensland state election and, and in that election the actual ads in the election were or at least one of the ads had a picture of Brendan Abbott saying this will never happen, you know, they'll never escape, he'll never escape from us. And so they devised ultimately a thing that they uh, uh, they called euphemistically Superma- the Supermax solution and that was just throw people away, you know, lock people away and throw away the key. And uh, he ended up being a part of that regime. All I'm saying is I think things got a bit crazy, things got a bit out of control and they're probably still so now. Uh, Abbott should have been out, in my view, in my humble view, should have been out a long time ago but nobody wants to let him out because nobody wants to be the one that's responsible for it. As I mentioned, you, as well as your work as a criminal lawyer, you write crime fiction, you write screenplays and films and and these stories often feature elements of cases that you've been involved in. Do the stories ever cut a bit close to the bone for some of the clients? Have you ever had any uh, criticisms or questions after you've published something as fiction from someone you've represented? Um, well, you know, I, I, I write fiction. Um, I think all So good... what you tell them late at night. It's all fiction. <laughs> well, that's what I... I, I but it's true. I, I don't write fact. I... I uh, my writing is a diversion for me. Uh, I would not be interested in... I've been offered uh, gigs to do and, and, and good money to write some um, things about uh, real-life crime, but I, it just doesn't interest me. I, I write fiction. Um, but um, because, as I said, I think all good fiction is based, uh, is based in fact... Um, all of my stories are based around my experiences and so forth with people and factually and so forth. Um, but then none of them are a, a, a complete lift. Then none of them are true stories. Um, and I think that um, uh, because of of that, because of the way I write, people tend to recognise particularly characters in my books. So, for example, when I wrote my first book, Cop This, which was about uh, the wild events of Prefits Gerald Inquiry Queensland. Um, I wrote a lot about a, about a lot of crooks and criminals and uh, crooks and uh, cops and so on and so forth and lawyers. Um, and after Cop This came out, I was constantly being besieged by people, main, mainly, mostly retired or still active police officers, saying, "Oh, I see you were writing about Merv so and so, and I see you, that bloke. I know who he is." And half the time I'd be saying, oh, yeah, 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 but I had no idea who they were talking about. <laughs> uh, but they were just, I think, recognising in the in that book, recognising character types, etc., which was quite gratifying because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to capture the character types and events. 
In the decades that you've been working closely with criminals, uh, guilty or innocent or, or otherwise, have you seen a change in, in the kind of, of criminals who you work with? Is there, a, is there a cultural change? Yeah, I think there is. I think, um, well, I perceive there to be. I think, you know, if you go back to the 70s, I think um, most of the criminals were still basically products of Struggle Street. They were people that were just trying to make their way and uh, do a bit better than they should have been doing. Um, I think that's changed over the years. I mean, you know, the, I guess the bikies are a, a great example. The bi- bikies used to be basically bushies. They were just wild, I was going to say wild young men, but they weren't all young, but just um, wild people. Some of them were um, uh, ex vets and all that sort of stuff. But that seems to have changed the, the flavour of all of that. But, the, you know, they were just real knockabout sort of bushies. Now there's a sort of an organised crime washed to them. Now I think part of that wash is purposely imposed by authorities, but I think to some extent there is a truth in that. I think that goes across the board. There was a very, very strong sense of camaraderie and uh, I'll call it an honour amongst thieves, which isn't quite correct, but but a sense that um, you, could, you couldn't step outside of the, the rules, as it were. I think a lot of that's gone by the board. I think now people are much more in that world, much more looking after their own interests. In your, uh, your crime fiction, the lawyer is called Eddie. Is that a tribute to your dad? You know, it's not really. It's actually, it's, it's more of a lift... When I first wrote that character, I was thinking of Fast Eddie Felson, who was the uh, Paul Newman in The Hustler, was Fast Eddie Felson, and and this lawyer was to be a kind of fast-moving dude, so it just became Eddie. But it still works as a tribute to your dad in it my It does, book. indeed, yes. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for, for telling us a bit about your life and your family on Conversations. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Chris Neist was my guest today, and Chris's latest novel is called Millen. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Patrick Stack, and what I love about Conversations is the storytelling. We're trying to bring you a piece of that in our new podcast, ABC Sport Daily. I don't know if you heard him say that that they weren't here to put socks on centipedes. (laughs) Each episode, we're going to give you the full story behind sport's biggest stories. Run like you're trying to break things. Tackle like you're trying to break the opposition. We're talking to people in the know about stories you'll want to know. This is my 50th Tour de France this time. It's seriously good, but we won't take ourselves too seriously. When you think you're driving a Mercedes and you look under the hood, you realise it's it's merely a, a Fiat. One story each day in under 15 minutes. ABC Sport Daily, your daily sports conversation.